we rely on them. We rely on our family support for many things, for connecting with them for our own wholeness to say so that we are harmonized internally because our harmony comes from being around people, being around family. So everything revolves around people and family in India. Welcome to the Indianist Podcast, a show about leaders of Indian origin who have overcome challenges and worked with dedication to ultimately achieve success. By telling the stories of the defining milestones in their journeys, we hope to inspire others to learn how they too can succeed in their pursuits. Here's your host, Sanjay Puri. Welcome to the Indianist Podcast. It's a show about leaders and success stories of change makers of people of Indian origin from around the world and why are Indians so successful globally in so many disciplines? I don't know, but let's find out together. Today we have Dr. Soumya Vishwanathan with us. Dr. Vishwanathan currently serves as the chief physician executive for Baycare Health System, which is one of the largest health systems in Central Florida. She has had a tremendous career in leadership roles with some very, very large health systems like Tenet Healthcare and many others. But the thing that really interested me and excited me in having a conversation with her is that she's been a physician, she's practiced as a physician, but she's also been a teacher. She started the Harvard Public Health School. She's also now in administration. And not too many people go down that path. And so that was very fascinating for me, a physician, a teacher, now a leader in administration in the health system. So welcome, Somia. Wanted to hear about your journey. So let's begin with your journey and tell us where it began, where were you born, and just how you got to the beautiful city of Tampa, Florida. Thank you, Sanjay. Thank you so much for having me on this podcast. Appreciate this opportunity. So I was born and raised in India. I was born in a city called Madurai, which is in southern part of India. It's interesting because after I was born there, my parents were traveling quite a bit within India. So I actually got to spend quite a bit of time traveling around India and actually getting to know all the different states and different cultural nuances of each of the states as I traveled with my parents during school. Finally, for my medical school, I came back to Madurai, which was the next time I was back in my hometown where I was born. And then when I came to U.S., it was basically to do, I got married, I came over to Boston. When I came to Boston, I applied for residency. So I got in Boston. So Boston University is where I completed my residency. It was interesting journey. It has been interesting journey since then. We had been in Boston for almost 32 years. My move to Tampa has been quite recent over the past year. So 32 years of healthcare career in New England. I started out as an internal medicine doc. I'm a practicing physician, so I did hospital medicine. We used to be the old school of family doctor, if I can call that, where we would see generations of patients. I had great-grandparents, grandparents, parents, children, grandchildren. All of them would come and see me in my clinical practice. And then I would round in the hospital, would take care of the grandparents in the nursing home. So I did all of that. But fortunately, I had some good leadership opportunities, mentors who believed in me and trusted that I could lead projects 
And so they gave me the opportunity. So at UMass, where I spent 10 years, I actually led a lot of efforts around quality. And subsequent to that, after 10 years at UMass, I went to Partners Healthcare. So I was at Partners for a few years. That was the period for of growth for me, where basically I was the person who raised my hand no matter which project came my way and said, I want to be part of it. It was more of my interest in really learning and growing as a leader because I started liking leadership, management, but at the same time, I was also a good physician. So there is a difference. And I wanted to experience the administrative, the management aspect. So I raised my hand for many things. I learned about the payer system. I raised my hand for running medical group, being part of the medical group. I was also, because of my experience in the hospital space, I was interested in the hospital. It was also the time where we were looking at ACOs and I wanted to learn about value-based care. So all these together, informatics, you name it, pretty much every aspect of health system, I think, except legal, except law, I really didn't put my hand there. But I was there raising my hand for everything. And it was at that time that, again, it leads to a lot of mentorship, having good mentors who steer you in the right direction. So I had people who told me, well, you're good at everything you're trying to pick up. You want to build your credentials as well. And that's how you build your resume. So I did enroll for master's in business administration, MBA, and I did back-to-back double master's. So I did an MBA and I did a master's in healthcare management at Harvard School of Public Health. So that was an eye-opening experience because it was tremendous value add given the scope of responsibilities that healthcare leaders have to really drive our country towards providing the right type of care for all the patients in the community. So it was a fantastic course. I would recommend that in a heartbeat to any physician leader who wants to grow in the leadership space. And then I brought all these together. I went on to take on, take up a role with Dartmouth Hitchcock as the chief ACO officer. So I was there for a brief period of time running the ACO. We were transitioning from Pioneer ACO to Next Gen ACO. And as I was transitioning into all these roles, it was interesting I felt the only gap I had was all of these are large academic medical centers, nonprofit, and I wanted to really experience the so-called for-profit world because there are things that we learn in for-profit, financial efficiencies, operational efficiencies. And I debated, should I go into a company? Should I do pharmaceuticals or should I look for a healthcare system that's for-profit? And that's when I joined Tenet. It was a fantastic experience, again, learning how the for-profit brain works and how the for-profit system works in their efficiencies. Subsequent to that, I had a great opportunity in Baycare Health System, which is where I am now for the past year, and I took on the role of chief physician executive in this role. Now, through these years, I actually continued my clinical practice, but had to start scaling back, obviously, because as responsibility started to grow, it was not going to be fair for my patients if I was not available for them. So when I was at Partners, I started cutting back and I had good nurse practitioners who were helping me. And eventually when I went to Dartmouth, it was really small. I think I spent half day, some weeks it was half day, some weeks it was one day a week. And then when I joined Tenet, I stopped my clinical practice. So it was a gradual transition from being a clinician to being in leadership. And I have taught, for the most part, 
because I enjoy teaching. And of course, the nuances between being a clinician to a teacher to an administrator and a leader is definitely something that I've enjoyed experiencing through my journey. Wow, that's a lot to unpack. Amazing journey. So maybe let's go back to the beginning. I mean, like I said, I was just, my mind is really going in so many places. But one of the things you said when you were growing up, you were moving around a lot. Do you think that experience, because most people don't realize in India, when you go from one place to another, there is sometimes a very stark difference, especially when you go from north to the south or the east to the west, etc. Do you think that has helped you with dealing with change? I mean, because as a young person, making new friends, new language, as you know, in India, languages, food, customs, uh, that's pretty big difference. So tell us a little bit about those experiences, because here we try to really figure out what's the secret mojo of amazing people like you. I love that question. It is very true because personalities are different. There are personalities who don't like change, who are very grounded in their thinking. There are certain personalities who are more adaptable to change. It's a personality thing, but it's also the experiences that make you that person. So for me, those experiences from different states in India, so just like you pointed out, the states in India are not like states in other countries because it's very interesting. Somebody who goes to India can hop and skip from one state to another, and it's like you're in a completely new country by itself. It's a new language, new script, new dialect, new foods, new traditions. People sometimes may not understand what you're saying, even though you've just crossed the border. So the adaptability and ability to handle change more easily definitely came from those experiences. It's also the love for adapting and enjoying new cultures, new traditions came from my journey in different states. Because you're right. The food habits in northern part of India is so starkly different than southern part of India. The language is different. Traditions are different. Marriage rituals are different. So just even learning the scope of how much is possible within a country like India, it was astounding. And it was absolutely beautiful. That's what I hear from a lot of people. Because think about the changes that you've gone through. You came here, you went through your residency, but what drove you? Somia, you could have just, in lot, like a lot of people, and there's nothing wrong, who build a great practice, have great success. But you took on two degrees back to back. One degree is hard enough for people to handle who got full-time jobs. And you also probably had a family at the same time. But you were doing it, your MPH at Harvard Business School. You were doing your MBA. But what was it that was driving you for doing something like that? It was the my, I want to say, my zest for really establishing myself in healthcare leadership. It was driven by, there were people who you have a group of friends who are clinicians, and there were many a times where people would come back and say, I know you're handling this project. I know you're doing this. I think it's going to be a lot of work. And for me, the minute somebody almost gives me a hint that something is either not possible or it's going to be too much of a burden. I actually try to make it possible. It's the drive to prove that everything and anything is possible. I think that was definitely one of the drivers. I'm very driven toward proving that we can do something if we really put our mind to it. But you also have to be passionate about it. You have to have an interest. So if somebody comes and tells me, we want you to do some aspect of healthcare, 
And if I'm not interested, I'm not going to gravitate towards it. What I found myself gravitating towards getting the double masters was, in fact, the leadership opportunities that I had to manage projects early on in my career. So while I was practicing, even though my patients still meet, they see me at a gas station or they see me in the grocery store and they're like, Dr. Me, when are you coming back to practice? Because I had such a fantastic relationship with my patients. So I miss that part. But when I got the leadership opportunities, it was interesting how I actually enjoyed it. And I think for me, it was the scalability of how we can impact larger communities if we do the right thing and if we have the right leadership in place. That piece attracted me to really amp up my resume. And there were mentors, like I said, who said, you need to build up your resume, not just credentials. So I have friends who have done the same thing. They will go get an MBA because they need to have an additional credential. But if you match up credentials and you don't have ground experience, you don't head anywhere. You need to do both at the same time. So I was doing all these, volunteering my time endlessly to do projects, and at the same time, trying to get my degrees to help me level set myself. The other piece that I want to point out is the degrees were very helpful because I knew there were gaps within my own education that I needed to fulfill and fill those gaps. Classic example is finance. Innately, I was not driven to learning finance language because I went into medicine. Could I learn it? Yes, but I needed formal education to do that. And if I was going to eventually sit in board meetings and people were going to talk about finance and P&Ls, I wanted to feel comfortable understanding that language. So that drove me to get the additional degrees because it really affirmed my confidence in talking and asking the right questions when I'm at boards and really understanding the healthcare system landscape as a whole and not just the clinical piece. Just going back, Somia, were you always inclined when you were growing up as a child towards healthcare or was it, as they say, there are two only options for Indians, you'd be either a doctor or engineer and there's nothing else. So just obviously right now, it comes across you're so passionate about healthcare. I do. Interesting that you asked that question. So I loved medicine, but if I had not gone into medicine, my first passion was actually to be, had always been to be a NASA engineer. I was to work for NASA. I have a very engineering mind. It's kind of strange, but it was, like I said, people often say you, you're an engineer or you're medical but at one point, I was just like, I had to debate which one do I actually want to pick? Do I want to be a doctor or do I want to be an engineer? I think I ended up gravitating towards medicine. It was a difficult time. It's also a time when we sometimes you go back and say, what if I didn't do medicine? What would I have been? NASA engineer is one that has been a passion of mine. I still to this day would love to have tours in NASA just because I like the feel of it. The other part of me, the other half of me is very creative. So if I were to say something happened to me today, I'm not doing healthcare leadership and I'm not in healthcare, I'm a very creative person. So I really enjoy creating designs. And my friends and I have often joked about this and said, if you weren't doing this, we'd probably be setting up a boutique shop, creating our own designs and in clothing or clothing design. So anything that's creative is very attractive for me. Wow. Just as an aside, I have a very good friend who is a physician and has been an astronaut 
on NASA. And one of these days, I'll introduce you to him. He's a medical doctor who's been in space and has written a book about it too, because they need doctors up there sometimes too. But that's a whole different story. But NASA, wow, that's an amazing story. Now, Somia, you have the title of chief physician executive. Now, our audience, everybody is not medically inclined. Now, you also have thrown words like ACO and others. So just what does the chief physician executive do? And what is an ACO? Just so that people who are not used to medical lingo would be helpful. Absolutely. So the traditional titles that people hear are CEO, chief executive officer, who is basically an external facing role for most organizations. So they are there to build relationships with key stakeholders that would support the organization. Chief in healthcare, chief medical officer is another title that's very common. They run the enterprise of all physicians, physician extenders like allied health professionals, advanced practice providers, physician assistant, nurse practitioner, et cetera. So the more clinical enterprise is run by CMOs. The chief physician executive is an interesting role. And then you have chief operations officer who basically run anything from facilities to the brick and mortar, the capital that's requested for hospitals and other areas. The chief physician executive is a great term because it brings the importance of the clinical and operations team together and says the chief physician executive should not just be in charge of the clinicians. They should actually be involved just as actively in driving strategic direction with the CEO, driving operational excellence with the COOs and with the other entities. So it's the strategic, the financial, the operational piece that's tacked on to a traditional CMO role. So the scope of work for chief physician executives is often considered, at least thought about as a little bit broad in the sense, let's pull this team together to really make sense of what the whole system is doing, bringing it together as a whole. The ACO is a relatively new term. And what has happened is it was driven by the fact that Nationally, at least in US, we know healthcare costs are tremendous. The cost of providing healthcare, the cost of receiving healthcare, everything has gone up incrementally over the past several decades. So, one of the things that we have looked at, and US has been in the forefront of evaluating this, is how do we provide? And this is not like in India, where a lot of most of India are a big portion of India still does not have an insurance program. They have a standard national insurance program that has come out, but it's not rolled out the way it is in US. In US, pretty much everybody banks on your insurance to pay for a lot of visits and etc. So what has happened is the insurance market, because the insurance market drives a lot of the billing and practices here in healthcare, and it's not cash pay, we have to decide what is the appropriate level of care that we provide for everybody who seeks care? So if there is somebody who is seeking care, we want to make sure we are providing the right level of care, that we are not duplicating efforts, that the same person is not going and getting three MRIs of the brain just because the hospital, you visited the emergency room, they did an MRI, then you go to the clinic and they haven't spoken to each other. So your primary care doctor does another MRI. And then you go to an urgent care for some other reason, and they're like, we don't have that MRI, so we're going to repeat it again. So 
it's that duplication of effort that drives the cost to a certain extent. So basically, the ACOs came up and said, how do we manage to reduce the overutilization of resources and the cost of healthcare, providing healthcare, but at the same time, not compromise on quality? So it was critical that maintaining quality and clinical excellence is the true north. You keep that as your Bible, and then you say, okay, now I'm going to figure out how do I control the cost of care? And ACOs came into existence because what they did was they said, let's build ACOs. They are called accountable care organizations, and they will have the accountability to managing the total cost of care while maintaining the quality of care for the patients they serve. So people who, enrollees who are rolled up into ACOs the physicians, the nurses, everybody in that ACO is now held accountable for managing that patient as a whole without letting costs escalate too much. So if we have pockets of ACO throughout the country, then and everybody is held accountable and they're doing the right thing for the patients, that is one way to manage the total cost of care and the health burden of the country. I hope that leads to lowering the cost of healthcare and improving healthcare because as the United States puts out about 15% of its GDP towards healthcare, and we are not ranked as high as other developed countries, but that's a topic for another discussion. We could spend hours trying to argue that. Somia, just going back a little bit towards when you were working towards your leadership role, you're a woman of Indian origin, woman of color, as they say right now. Now you see a lot of changes that have happened. Were there other peers that you found, because you mentioned a few times, and I want to go back to the point of mentors being such an important aspect, and a lot of our guests talk about the role of mentors. So if you can just talk a little bit about were there others like you, or was it a hard path you were trailblazing, and then I want to delve into a little bit into the role of mentors too. So there were a couple, one of them very near and dear to me, who has since passed one of my mentors. He was my program director when I joined my residency program, Dr. Kasowitz. So Joel was an astounding mentor. He basically said, never let anybody think you cannot do something. He was the one who instilled that in me. And he said, you can achieve whatever you want to achieve. And the word impossible in my dictionary is not impossible. It's I am possible. That part of it was actually instilled by Dr. Kaslowitz because he said, everything is possible and we have had challenges. I came into this country. I was a very meek and very quiet, reserved, not showing up against adversities, not if people countered me, I would just cover. And I have grown into a confident person who believes that if I did the right thing and I want to represent integrity and high morals, then I need to stand up for it. So he instilled that in me. He was definitely a great mentor for me. The other person who has instilled that we need to be able to speak up for what we believe in and not be afraid of anything is Nancy Kane. And she'll be very proud to hear I'm saying her name, although she doesn't like all this propaganda, but she taught us at the master's. I was under her training at master's in healthcare management at Harvard School of Public Health. She always represented the fact that don't be afraid to speak up. And she has given us multiple times where 
she said, I got into trouble because I spoke up and that was the truth. But she said, nobody blamed me for it afterwards that I was hiding anything. I just told the truth. So a lot of times just being our authentic self and showing our authenticity is important and not hiding behind a facade of a curtain or a veil that doesn't show my authentic self is important for me. And that has, I think I have represented that quite well. You can see that I have a slight accent. I do have an accent. And I sit in rooms sometimes if I don't understand a language, I will just openly say, I don't think I have heard that before. Can you explain? I think we all need to be showcasing our authenticity and letting people know we are here to be part of a team and learn from everybody. And just being a woman and a woman of color should not deter me from being behind anybody in the race. Those are great words, showing your authenticity. I think we need a lot more definitely of that. Somia, you talked a lot about mentors and we have other women leaders come in there, etc. Are you mentoring people, as they say, paying it forward? Is that something that you also, you had Dr. Nancy King and others who are doing it. Is that something you also believe in doing? I would love to, Sanjay. I haven't had an opportunity where people have actually formally asked me. I have done a lot of mentoring and coaching more on the side where people have directly reached out to me and said, I really want to learn from you. And it hasn't been just women. It's actually been men, women of all kinds who have reached out and mm -hmm. said, I really want to learn from you and how to groom myself into a healthcare leadership position. Sometimes it's just leadership position. And I have people reaching out to me on social media quite a bit where they say, I just want to talk to you, just want to learn how you got here. And what can I learn from you? Can you share with me? So I've done it impromptu, no formalized process, but I would love to have a formalized process and be engaged in that. She's giving an open offer to people who are listening. We will obviously take up some people who reach out to us on that. So that's very nice of you, Somia. Somia, the world of healthcare is changing right in front of our eyes. I mean, you know it probably also, whether it's talking about the use of stem cell technology, artificial intelligence, robotics, across the world, things are changing. What is your viewpoint, especially the topic du jour right now is AI and generative and how it is going to impact the world. What would be your thoughts? Because you have an amazing view as a practitioner, as a teacher, as an administrator. Absolutely. This is a topic near and dear to me. I have to say that there are few disruptions that have shaken the world. And when I say shaken more positively, at that time, probably it was like, wow, what are you talking about? But when you look back a few decades ago, you know, when computers came into the world, it was a disruption. Mm -hmm. Did people believe in it? Probably not. And then it took a few geniuses to really say, I don't care if you don't believe in it. We are moving forward with it. The same thing happened with internet. And when internet broke and people started talking about, wow, this is a new way. People were afraid, but it's globalization to the core because it really brought other aspects of the world to my screen page on my computer where I could dig into any place anyone is and help technology build my knowledge and medical knowledge and general knowledge. 
The third piece of this, I think, is going to be AI. And a lot of it is the automation piece because we all have gone through the COVID phase. We know what COVID did to us. One thing that it did do to the healthcare system and healthcare in general was really brought out the stark reality of the fact that health is critical, but it also brought out on the healthcare workforce the issue about burnout. So from a healthcare landscape, what we are finding is we are humans. There's only so much we can do. Yes, we have all the brains. There's so much we can do. But wouldn't it be great if we had people who can help us? There's not enough people to do that kind of work. And technology is one way to help them get there. So we have heard a lot about ChatGPT. We have heard a lot about generative AI. I have to say that it's going to be the wave of the future, but it's going through growing pains now. I'm actually giving two talks on AI topics in the next couple of weeks, and it's going to be AI and healthcare, how we are using it. So whenever we have now new technology, I think, first of all, we got over the fact that change is hard. Now people are adaptive to change. So they are welcoming AI. But in their need to welcome AI, sometimes you have to worry that they're going so fast that they are not looking at the hiccups on the way. So as people are identifying the hiccups and saying, okay, we need the AI will only pick up on what we are feeding into it and then spitting out what it is picking up and analyzing what we are feeding into it. As long as we understand that, that's great. When will the time come when it becomes emotionally intelligent, and that's already happening, where it picks up language that we are saying and feels like, okay, I don't think that's important for this note. So classic example is, and you may have read this, I don't know if you did, but Baker Health System is engaging with AI tool that's going to be, so we already have an AI tool that's going to help physicians with the dictations. And it's called DAX. We are already rolling it out where as the physician is talking to the patient, the DAX will pick up on nuances of the conversation right up. The next iteration is we wanted to make sure the nurses are also having a similar tool that will help prevent burnout. So we are engaging in a technology which is going to be rolled out pretty soon where the nurse will be having an interactive conversation with patients and it's picking up on the note, writing the note for the nurses and also picking up on the emotional piece a little bit and really analyzing the whole conversation because the nursing conversation with patients is a little different than what physicians have. So is AI here to stay? I believe it's here to stay. Do we need to refine it? Yes, we do. And there's a lot of people who are refining it so fast that we'll have a pretty good finished product pretty soon that's going to be helpful for us. Well, that's great to hear that help for overworked physicians and absolutely overworked nurses is on the way. Somia, that's great to hear. Somia, you know I'm involved a lot in the U.S.-India corridor and you coming from originally from India. Are there opportunities for the United States and India to collaborate in the healthcare world? Obviously, there's collaboration in defense and all those other stuff, et cetera. Do you have any thoughts on that? Because I know you've done some work or at least looked at some of that. There is a lot of opportunity. And it will be so energizing if and when U.S. and India can get together on both of these things we just discussed. One is healthcare. We already know that telehealth is a big wave where telemedicine has really picked up speed through COVID. COVID helped accelerate that. We were a little bit behind the eight ball 
in rolling out telemedicine here because we could easily do telemedicine e-consults, what we call asynchronous visits, where we are having conversations through kiosks, computers with physicians when we don't really have to go in. Doesn't mean you shouldn't have physicians, you shouldn't be seeing physicians. They should be there. They have to be reserved for really complex cases where they actually have to examine you. Otherwise, you can do a lot with telemedicine. COVID accelerated that because we couldn't go in and see anyone. It also accelerated the fact that globalization and telehealth became more popular, where people from across the country said, oh, now we have a really rich platform where we can access medical experts and expert opinion from any country around the world to help guide us. Complex surgeries, complex procedures are even now being done in India in some hospitals where they are able to connect with specialists around the world to give them guidance and keep going with the procedures and guide them all the way through. Now, is it possible to have that accessible across India? Yes. We need to have the infrastructure built to help support that. The second piece is what you just mentioned, is AI. And the reason I'm bringing that up is India, we have seen, has had exponential growth in the tech space. When we talk about technology, in fact, here I was on a flight. There was a woman who was sitting next to me and she asked me, she said, are you from India? And I said, yes, she's not Indian. And she was a white American woman. And she said, which part of India? So I mentioned to her, this is where I grew up. I said, do you know about India? She said, yeah, I know a little bit because my father was stationed there and he was in Mumbai. And so I visited a few times. Then she came out to ask me, she said, are you a doctor? And I was like, yes. So it kind of threw the eight ball on. Okay, so there is this cliched standardization approach or almost addressing that Indians are doctors or they are technicians or in computer science. So I asked her, I said, I actually asked her this. If I said I wasn't a doctor, what would you ask me next? She said, a computer engineer. So it was interesting. So I realized at this point that India has gone so far ahead in taking over technology and really guiding the path for the creating the glide path on how technology should be for the rest of the world, that AI is really going to be, India is going to be a hotbed for AI. It will ramp up there and we are going to be on the forefront of providing great services from India. And that's where I would love to see our collaboration and partnership with India grow. Your point about telemedicine, I think, is a great point. I would say maybe one of the very few good things that ever came out of COVID was the acceptability of telemedicine around the world. And I think India could use that and we could use some of the expertise that India have. Just you are an Indian-American, follow a lot of Indian traditions and cultures. How do you balance the Indianness at home and then being the American professional? Is that ever a dichotomy or anything like that for you, Somia? I put a lot of emphasis on that so-called balance, as you just called it. For me, and as for most Indians, we don't do well without family support. We rely on them. We rely on our family support for many things, for connecting with them for our own wholeness, to say, so that we are harmonized internally because our harmony comes from being around people, being around family. So everything revolves around people and family in India. 
other than food. Food is another driver. It's food, family, people. So what I have done to really help me balance out the work is I don't consider work as work because I have brought a lot of my inner traditions that I follow in India to work. And it's also a great team that we have here. The team that we have here at Baycare, they want to be part of a team that feels like family. So we are trying to inculcate a lot of fun in what we do. And I have started involving a lot of my team members in what we are calling International Food Festival Day, which we are going to start as a tradition. And it's going to involve international foods that people will be cooking and bringing for everybody here. So that's just one example. But we are bringing in values and traditions that we have picked up on, which we like over to our team so that we feel that wholeness between both work as well as at home. But I do balance it out well because I do strongly feel that keeping the family involved and prioritizing them just as much as our work is critical for everyone's success. Well, that's great to hear because sometimes it's a challenge for us. Now, obviously, you, you still have a long, long way to go, but where do you see your journey going from here, Somia? So we have a lot of work to do in Baycare because Baycare is on a growth mode right now. And the growth is probably stemming from the fact that Baycare wanted to grow, has new leadership here. But the other piece is there's been a huge exponential increase in the influx of population coming from other states to Florida. We have seen that. So the demand is there. So the supply has to ramp up. And the supply is going to come from Baycare, at least on this coast of Florida. So we see that at least for the next few years, there'll be a lot of work going on in Baycare to help support the influx of population and growth we are seeing. And it's different generations. Florida traditionally has not seen this many number of young generations, young families coming and settling here. So there is a lot of dire need for really enhancing the type of work we were doing in Baycare and really moving forward with what else can we support? So there's a lot of work to begin with. In terms of more global work, I would want to be more engaged in US and India collaborative efforts and partnerships. I have a few people I'm already speaking with just to see what kind of partnerships, what kind of ventures can I personally get involved because there is so much we can do together for the same reasons we spoke about that I think it would be very helpful for us to really strike more conversations with the U.S. government as well as the Indian government to see how much more we can do together. Well, fantastic. Supporting local Floridians and expanding into U.S.-India opportunities. Some of our listeners who are listening who have U.S.-India health opportunities, the person who could be really helpful. So that'll be fantastic. Great, exciting times. So we generally tend to end with a little bit of a lightning round which is quick questions to kind of see what your thoughts are. These are quick thoughts. So what is your definition of Indianness? Everybody has a different one. Being, uh, can I use a phrase instead of one word? Yeah. Well, okay. It doesn't have to be, no, it's a, it can be a phrase, sentence, couple of sentences, a small paragraph. Again, being our authentic self, of not being a superficial or a showy person, but being an authentic self, Humility is another big one. Hospitality is another big one with Indianness. Indians are known to be hospitable people, 
where we extend our hospitality to everybody, even whoever is not favorable towards us or whoever is not in the best interest of the situation, we will be the kindest human being. So I have never heard of Indians who are have a malicious intent or have vicious intent when they are faced even with the most adverse circumstances, they are the kindest human beings. So that is what goes back. Another aspect of Indianness, this is again coming back from one of my mentors from the past, he used to always say that the piece that I remember about India is if you love colors and you love aromas, you will love India. That has stuck with me. It's just vibrant with color and aromas, and it reflects life. People love, people from Indian origin love life, which is the most energizing part of us. That's pretty good. Authentic, honest. And one thing I can tell you, she's right. They'll kill you with the food and serving you and being hospitable till you can't eat more. So that's a good feedback. How about one person that from India or Indian American that you really look up to or inspires you? A living person, not person who's dead. Okay. So I wish she was living, but internally, my mother, she just passed away. So I'm still going to bring her name up. Just a genuine person who absolutely had such zest for life that it rubs off on anyone who's around her. But another person who has always inspired me again, Professor Abdul Kalam, just for the genuine person that he was, just a kind human being who always went out of his way and also being a visionary thinker at the same time. He had a vision that level set and that helped us define what India should look like for the future. So these two definitely are big people who have since passed away. I do have a lot of respect for current administration in India, Mr. Modi. So Narendra Modi is definitely somebody who has paved the path for a lot of great things that are happening currently in India and being that stalwart for progress, which is admirable. I need to sneak in one question because you mentioned you traveled in India a lot going to different places. Favorite city in India since you've been so many places? I don't know if you're going to stick to Madurai, but what is your favorite city? I actually love Chennai. I think it's because we had a lot of family in Chennai. So even if we lived in other states for vacations, we would come down to Chennai. Mm -hmm. That's where my cousins were. That's where my grandparents were. So it's all those fond memories that I had. But the other part of Chennai that I love is the people there are just normal, low key human beings. There is nothing that they are showing off. There are no hidden agendas with them. They are normal people who will just, and they're also kind at the same time. So it's that comfort level that I have that I can sit and do whatever I want with them. I can eat whatever I want and nobody's going to be judgmental. That part of Chennai is adorable. Wonderful. Chennai, it is. So last question is, what is the advice you would give your younger self 20, 30 years ago if you were to have a conversation to Somia? What would be the advice you would give to yourself 20, 30 years ago? The same thing. Everything and anything that I can imagine is possible. And you made it possible. What a great journey. And I think the best is still to come. Thank you, Somia. Thank you for being on the show. Really, really enjoyed this conversation. And I'm sure our Listeners are going to really get inspired by this. So thank you. Thank you, Sanjit. Thank you for listening to the Indianist Podcast. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review and subscribe to enjoy future inspirational stories.